We're in Acts chapter 10. I print the, I have a scheme for my work, and I print the um, bulletin in the beginning of the week, and I plan out my week and so on, and the sermon, and what I think the main theme is. I don't know why I ever do that, because always on Saturday, everything's completely different, and I have to print a brand new bulletin. So the sermon that I have right now is um, is what I, I developed, but I, I thought I was going to take it a completely different way. So next week, if I have a next week, and we all have a next week, which I hope we do, um, we'll look at some other things. We'll look at Peter's sermon, too. That's what I was intending, Peter's sermon to Cornelius. Um, but I, I have some other things. We looked at this passage, at least part of it, last week, and there are some things there that I thought were worth um, readdressing. Addressing. No, okay, Acts 10, verse 1. This is God's holy word. Now there was a man of Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. He gave many alms to the Jewish people. He prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa, send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He was staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were going on their way, approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry. He was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you've come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and a God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied them. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives with close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him. He fell at his feet, and he worshipped him. Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And they said to him, You yourselves know how... He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent for me. 
Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer, your prayers have been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, how we, we love your law, we love your gospel, we love you, Almighty God. And it was not we who loved you first, but it's you who loved us first. You loved us and died for us and rose again for us, Lord Jesus, while we were yet enemies, that you could change us from being enemies into children. We pray that we would be submissive, obedient, and cheerful children, receiving your word. Conform us into the image of the beloved, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The main doctrine that I want to look at, doctrine just means teaching, the main teaching I want to look at is, is um, basically encapsulated in my sermon title, Lessons for the Believing Servant of Christ. I know those words are kind of redundant, but I, I chose them specifically, meaning the true believer, the person that really believes, as opposed to a mere professor. It's easy to say that one is a Christian without truly believing in Jesus, hence the idea of believer. Um, so we are believers. My father-in-law uses the word believer in Portuguese. He lived in Brazil for a long time, crainty, as a pejorative. So he would say crainties are kind of foolish people. And I would say to him, Papa G, I am a crainty. I am a believer. So we're talking about in this passage what the nature of a crainty is, a believer in Christ. So not just theoretical or notional we believe in him. Our affections are towards him. Our will is unto him. He's everything to us. That's a believer. And then I've kind of attached that, hyphenated it to servant. Jesus is the master and we are the servants. That's a believer. I know we all say this is true. Yes, Lord, you are Lord. I am the servant. But it's easy because we still have the flesh. As believers, we have the regenerate nature, but we still have the, the fallen nature. It's easy to try to, to invert that business and say, I am the master and you are my servant. We treat God as if he exists for us, but we exist for him. And so we're going to look at the nature of a believer, a Christian, and the believer's servant. We exist to glorify God, to enjoy him, to serve him. That's why we're here. I used to wonder when I was first converted at 26, why didn't God just convert me and take me home? Why not do it that way? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why did God not just save you and then bring you to glory? He has work for you. That's the reason. He has work for you. Your whole life as a Christian is a platform to serve the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit as we serve other human beings. That's why we're not supposed to be hermits because God has called us to minister to other human beings. I'm not picking on hermits, but... We shouldn't be hermits. So we're looking at the nature of the believing servant. And the three fellows I want to look at that teach us about the nature of being a believing servant are Simon the Tanner. Even indirectly, he teaches us lessons. And then we're going to learn lessons about what it means for those that deny ourselves. We pick up our cross and we follow Jesus. Both Peter the Jew 
and, and, the, and, and Cornelius the centurion teach us about what it is when we say we are believing servants of Jesus. Um, so, so that's my purpose. Those are the lar- that's the larger theme. And I just want to walk through and look at the various ways or things that the Bible, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, teaches us about being a Christian. And if you look at this passage in a macro sense, even towards the, to, towards the passage that we're going to look at when Cornelius and his household are, are converted to Jesus Christ, but let, let's look at the big picture of what the Bible is teaching us about a Christian and then about the Christian church. We said last week, as we looked at this passage, that one of the things that we are taught from the conversion of, say, Cornelius, who's a Roman, a Gentile. Gentiles are non-Jews. He's a non-Jew. And so he's converted to Christ. He believes in God, in Christ. He's a saved person. He's a converted person. So one of the things that we're learning is that God means to include in his one flock people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. That's a promise that he gives in John 3.15, clear through to the whole Bible. That God says here, clearly, Peter is getting a major lesson because he's a Jew. God means to save Gentiles. He's in the Jew-saving business, the Gentile-saving business. And any time a person looks to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith for their salvation, there's no longer any Jew or Gentile. So I'm against hyphenating the church, the Korean church, the Chinese church, the Irish church, the German church. I'm against that. Um, When we are joined to Jesus, we're not the Irish Christian, the British Christian, the Indian Christian. What are you? You're a son of God. You're a child of Abraham. So the moment a person believes in the Lord Jesus, the Bible actually says this. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, when you believe in Jesus, there's no more Jew and Gentile. No more Jew and Gentile distinction. We're all one new man. We're believers. And the the moment we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as I say, no matter whatever ethnic, cultural, racial distinction you may have, you're a child of God. This is a John 1, 10 through 13. You're a child of God. You're translated from being a criminal, a child of wrath, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, to being a child of God. This is a huge lesson. So, this past week, there's been all the shenanigans, the political shenanigans, and I don't know, there were like 315 votes to get that guy elected, whatever it is. Beloved, our society is hyphenated and divided all over the place, right? But the church shouldn't be. Christians should not be. I'm a this hyphen, 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 hyphen. No. What are you? A child of God. What is the person sitting next to you that looks different, talks different, but they believe in the same Christ? What are they? They're your brother. They're your sister. So we're looking at the nature of what it means to be a a believing servant. Those who believe in Jesus Christ have passed from death to life. We're God's children. And he loves us. He loves us. God, God loves the believer with an unimaginable love. Are there any de- are there any is there any bottom to the love of God towards his children? Does he run out of love? No. And here's the thing. So that's from the that's from the individual sense, but from a corporate sense, 
the moment, this is what Cornelius is teaching us, the moment anyone believes in Jesus, irrespective of the other distinctions, not only are they joined to Jesus, but mystically they're joined to the body of Christ. This is a Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. We are mystically joined to the body of Jesus Christ. It's not just the OPC, the JPC, the DPC. All of this is all going to be gone in heaven. Anyone that believes in Christ, the true gospel of faith alone and Christ alone, anyone who believes that, we are joined to other believers of that throughout the whole planet. That occurs the moment we believe. And so God is busy building up what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 is the true Israel of God. That's why if we go to Zimbabwe and we walk into a worship service and they say, we love Jesus, and I say, I love Jesus, it's one flock. And the church of all the entities on the earth, we have the answer. It's not politics, it's not medicine, it's, and I'm for medicine, and I'm for economic, all that. I'm for all of that. But that's not the thing that's going to bring the unity. Christ, our brother prayed it. God in Christ is the answer. And so we're, we're learning. He, we, we, need, we need a way bigger view, a way bigger view of the church, of the kingdom of God, of the purpose of the gospel. So God is including in this one family everywhere. You remember the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? Again, this is just principally what's being taught with the conversion of, of Cornelius. Jesus prays in John 17, his prayer. We, we call the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. But it's not really the Lord's Prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer that he teaches us. It's the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer that he prays is John 17. It's, it's the night before he dies on the cross. Read John 17. What does he pray for the believers? That we become what? One. One, 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 one. That's the oneness. That's the unity. And I want to ask you something. Since Jesus has died to make all of these various people in him one flock, and since Jesus prays that experimentally we would would experience this oneness, that means oneness of thought, oneness of doctrine, oneness of affection, oneness of will. Since he prays for that, remember we're his servants. If Jesus says, this is what I want, I want you all to love one another. Not just in word, love you, man, love you, man, but then we hate you, man. (laughs) He says, I want you to love one another, respect one another in word and deed, and act like a family. I know all of our families are dysfunctional. I understand that. But you, you know what I'm getting at. Since he prays that, and we're his servants, what should our response be? Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Yes, Lord. We should labor with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and labor. Yes, 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 I'm a Calvinist. Labor, labor, labor. Labor to love your brother. Labor to love your sister in word and deed. What if they're different than I am? They're not different than you are. (laughs) They've been washed by the same blood. The other stuff is nonsense. It's, It's nothing in the sight of God. That's what this is teaching us in a macro way. That God in his family is saving all over the planet. And we are to labor, to be that unif in the church, if in the church, the world should be able to look at us and go, wow, look at all these people. It, it, you know the cartoon, The Island of the Misfits, where all the broken like toys and the Christmas toys are all broken, limping along? Look at our church. 
like, should we really even be sitting in the same room together? No, because we all come from all over the place. I'm a Yankee and ex-Catholic married to an ex-Hindu. I mean, we, we shouldn't even be in the same room. What's the thing that brings us together? It's not a thing. It's a person. It's Christ. That should be visible. Unbelievers and believers should look at the unity, the real unity that we have with other believers. And they could say, look at I think you're crazy for believing what you believe. But they can't deny when they see us loving and caring for other brothers and sisters in Christ. But the opposite is often true. If you don't have to be a Christian too long and you see we split over everything and we take our coffee pot and we go start a two-person presbytery, that's against what this prayer is. So that's the first lesson, that God is busy seeking and saving from all over the nations, making us one, and as servants, we're one family. Now, today I want to look at the next point is I want to consider what Simon the Tanner, Tanner of leather, obviously, he, he makes leather. So that's what he's tanning. In case, you know, sometimes we read things and go, Tanner, what's interesting? This must be his, like, I don't know, yuppie name. Like, uh, no, it's not a yuppie name. It's not a yuppie name. It's, um, it's his occupation. And so we have Peter going from Joppa. I think the modern is Jaffa. And uh, Joppa is on the south. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. And Caesarea is above. Um, but he goes, Peter goes from Simon the Tanner to vi- visit um, Cornelius. I want to talk a little bit about Simon the Tanner because he's preparation. God the Holy Spirit, remember we're servants, God the Holy Spirit is preparing Peter, who is a servant of Jesus Christ, to go do ministry to Cornelius the Roman centurion. But he's, he's in um, the, the, the uh, post-Puritan, 1700s, uh, early uh, American men like uh, Jonathan Edwards, would talk about being in the school of Christ. This is the school of Christ. He, Peter's in a classroom. As a servant, he's learning to, to go from serving Simon which is a smaller, smaller lesson, and he's going to increase the teaching, and he's going to go to what he needs to do to, to serve uh, the centurion, as I, as I hope to show. This fellow, Simon the Tanner's job, would have made him ceremonially unclean. And I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter um, uh, 11. And if you've never read Leviticus, well, if you've never read the Bible, do, do this. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 50 times, and then you can go read Leviticus. But don't read Leviticus first, (laughs) because you won't know what in the world's going on. But you should get the New Testament under your belt. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 50 times, and then after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't go to Leviticus, do Romans, which is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, then you can go read Leviticus, read Hebrews, and then you really know what's going on. But Leviticus 10, Leviticus 11, listen to this. This is in regard to Simon concluding all the animals which divide the hoof, cows, but do not make a split. I don't know. Do cows have a split hoof? And which do not chew the cud. They are unclean to you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. Also, whoever walks on its paws among all the creatures, whatever walks on its paws among all the creatures that walk on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall become unclean until evening. The one who picks up the carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. So this, again, is under the old ceremonial law. The ceremonial law depicts the person in the work of Jesus. I'm going to talk about that in just a bit. This guy, by his occupation, would have been unclean 
all day long, every day. Because what's his job to do? He's a butcher. He's slaughtering critters, and then he's slinging. And so for this reason, also, the old priests, basically the priests had hip waders on, and they were killing animals all day long. So, but I digress. So Simon would have been ceremonially unclean. That's important for us as we consider the business of being a servant, especially that Peter goes to see him. Some of your study Bibles may say that this guy is a Gentile. I don't think so. I think Simon the Tanner is a Jew. And the reason I think that he's a Jew uh, are, are two reasons. One, um, the Apostle Peter's visit actually precedes when he gets the divine vision to say that Gentiles are clean. So he goes there before he gets told from the angel, don't call Gentiles clean. And he goes. One, I think he's a Jew. And the other reason is uh, when Peter enters into the house of Cornelius, round about verse 28 of chapter uh, 10, he says, you know that Jews, according to the religious tradition, are not supposed to do what? I'm not supposed to walk into your house, Gentile. So for that reason, I think Simon the Tanner is a Jew who would have been ceremonially unclean by his job. And Peter goes to visit him. This is really significant. So I do think he is a Jew. What's going on is God the Holy Spirit is teaching Simon, but preeminently Peter, as the gospel servant. He's the guy running around telling people about Jesus. You can't be a good teacher unless you're a good student. For people that go, you know, I hate school, but I want to be a minister. (laughs) It's like, I hate school, but I want to be a professor. As a professor, you're a professional student. And the same thing for a minister. You can't be a good teacher of Christ until you're a good learner of Christ. Peter is getting a lesson from this guy, Simon Simon the Tanner, that he's ministering to. So God is busy teaching um, teaching Simon Peter not to say that Simon the Tanner is ceremonially unclean. That's the smaller lesson. He's not unclean by his job in Christ anymore. Now that's the smaller lesson. And then the larger lesson is don't call Cornelius the Gentile unclean because of his race. He's not unclean because of his job in Christ. Don't call this man unclean because of his race in Christ. Smaller lesson to larger lesson. So one of the things that we see is God in Christ is training both Simon Peter and Simon the Tanner, but Simon Peter incrementally. Little bits by little bits. God mainly does not teach us all of his truth of the Bible all at once. Mainly doesn't work that way. Mainly God teaches us um, almost imperceptibly, but very slowly and in little bits. Do all Christians have the same measure of faith? Do we all have the same measure of faith? No, we don't. I forget where it says it in Romans, but it's in Romans. Some have a small faith, some have large faith. How much faith do you need in Christ to get you to heaven? The size of a what? A mustard seed. So you could say, man, I got like Mickey Mouse faith. If you have true faith in Jesus and the other guy next to you is an absolute rock star, good on him. It's God that gives the the, the measure of faith. You're going to heaven. Some people have small faith. Some people have large faith. Some people have weak faith. And some people have strong faith. And guess what? Sometimes that goes up and down. You can be a rock star on one day. I totally believe I could charge the hill for Jesus. And on the next day, you could say, I don't even know who this Jesus is. I don't know who he is. Same guy. 
So, beloved, if you're sitting there going, I think I am strong in faith. Praise God for that if, if it's you. But be careful because when we get prideful, God says, I'm going to take you to humility uh, class 101. So God is teaching his men incrementally. The Bible talks about growing us often in the stages of humanity, of a human. We go from being babes in Jesus, brephoi, and then we go from being a young child, a pideon, and then we go to a, 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 a young man or a young woman, and then we go to a mature man, a mature woman. And God is busy raising and incrementally teaching his people. That's how God is teaching the apostle Peter, incrementally. And as he teaches him from taking him from Simon the Tanner, the unclean Jew, to who's not unclean, to Cornelius the Roman, who's also not unclean. Oftentimes, God teaches us incrementally for this reason. He condescends to the measure of faith that we have currently. Remember when Jesus gets ready to go back to heaven? He tells the guys, you can't handle what I'm going to tell you right now. But you will. You, you can't receive it. Your faith is too small. I'll tell you later, and then you will be able to receive it. That's one of the things that we see implicitly taught. God does not teach his servants all at once. He teaches us bit by bit, and he condescends to where we're at. You can only take milk, and then when you get stronger, you can take meat. You're not going to call the Jewish guy unclean because of his job. Now, don't call the Gentile unclean because of his race. Smaller lesson, larger lesson. And if I could say this by way of pastoral application, sometimes for us as Christians, we don't emulate our Savior who teaches us incrementally, slowly, and condescends to our weaknesses. What do we do? This is all the stuff I know, and therefore you should know everything I know right now. And then what happens? Boy, face, mirror, I don't even want to talk to you. You're so crazy. And we overburden We're not teaching religiously with graced wisdom. Why does God teach a little one this and then the bigger one this and then the bigger one that? Out of love and out of wisdom. So if God brings another person into your life that you can instruct religiously, look who's in front of you. Are they a believer? Are they unbeliever? And if they're an unbeliever, what's their background as an unbeliever? If they're a believer, are are they babes in the faith? People in Reformed churches get this. I, I think we mess up all the time. We see some babe in the faith that say they're more Arminian. Let's talk about superlapsarianism 24 hours a day. And the person looks and goes, what are you talking about? Of course, we don't know what we're talking about, but we're trying to show off to them. And does that build them up? No. So that's what we see. God is teaching his servants incrementally. Now, not only does Peter need to learn, don't call this... Jewish fellow unclean now in Christ. Simon the Tanner needs to to know it. Simon the Tanner needs to know it. Do we all, even as Christians, kind of evaluate ourselves and others based on earthly distinctives? Do we do that? And do we attribute, like, you get a couple of merits and then you get a couple of demerits? Oh, you're you're a blue-collar worker. That's a thumbs down. Uh, and then you're a white-collar worker, that's a thumbs-up. I'm going to tell you this. Don't give the blue-collar worker a thumbs-down because if he's a plumber and your toilet gets stopped up, you will pay him whatever he wants. You see what I'm saying? But we do this all over the place. 
Simon the Tanner needs to know from God, I'm not less in Christ because I'm a Tanner. Why, was he, why did he do his job by the sea? Why do you think? Why do you think he did his job by the sea? Because it stunk. I grew up on Cape Cod for many years, and I would go down to the fish market. Where would the fish market be? Right on the sea. What do they do? They're making fish heads all day long. And what does a bucket of fish heads smell like? Like a bucket of fish heads. And it's by the sea because it stinks. And people are apt to go, yeah, I'm just a, I'm just a tanner. No, Simon is, is apt to do that, but other Christians are apt to do that. And God wants him to know, you're not just a anything, you're a child of God. And the Gentile needs to know, well, I'm second-class citizen, I'm back-of-the-bus Christian. There's no such thing as back-of-the-bus Christian. Well, you came over in the Mayflower, and this guy didn't come over in the Mayflower. Cornelius needs to know that he's fully, 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 fully loved in Jesus. All of these things are going on. And one of the lessons that Peter is being uh, taught by Simon the Tanner, Simon the Tanner having this job would have been considered a, a lowly job. Christians need to learn this because we forget it. We're better when we're first converted at this and then we get worse sometimes as we go along. And what, are, what am I getting at? One of the lessons that we learn about Christ's servant is Christ saves from the lowly and then he sends us to the lowly. Christ saves from the lowly and he sends us to the lowly. Simon Tanner would have been, Simon the Tanner would have been a social outcast. No Jew was hanging out with this guy. Why? If I get near him, I'm, I'm unclean. He's, he's an outcast. And who does Jesus say, go see? A social outcast. I want you to think of that. You know the, the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? You know that the Laodicean spirit is this. We got all the cash in the world. We're healthy as horses. We're doing great. And what does the risen Jesus say? Actually, you're doing lousy. You're doing lousy. When we start off as new believers, usually we beat our breast and say, Thou, son of David, have mercy on me, the what? The sinner. When we come to Jesus, initially, are we thinking like, I'm super. I'm really super duper. No, usually we think, I'm in the pig pen living with pigs, and I'm a pig. Jesus, save me the pig. And what does Jesus say? I'm going to make you clean. Sometimes that wears off after a while as a Christian. And we think, you know what? I'm not really a pig. I have a black suit that costs me some money, and I can like smell good and do whatever. I'm not a pig anymore. I'm the high and the mighty. Our, high, our servants that think they're high and mighty good servants... God saves from the lowly, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 to 31, and then he sends us to the lowly. See, people, a servant that thinks, well, I'm pretty good. I really am not the lowly. We won't go to these guys. You won't go. You, you won't. We will not go to the so-called dregs of the society. Why? Because we're high and we're good. We're not them. We, like homosexuals are easy to pick on trans people I don't know this is new to me they're easy to pick on and we think how unseemly where's the Lysol or whatever and we're not good servants what's the message what does God see in us apart from Jesus when God looks at you and if you're not in Jesus what does he see in you he sees in Ezekiel 16 
And he sees a 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Liars, drunkards, fornicators, homosexual offenders, thieves, blasphemies, Sabbath breakers, all of it. That's what he sees. That's what he sees. In all of us. We, all, everyone, we are so unimaginably unclean, even when we dress up and smell good, apart from Jesus. We are the lowly. Jesus is in the saved, lowly self. We are the untouchables. I forget what it is in Hindi, but we're, we're the untouchables. And Jesus touches the untouchable and makes them clean. And he says to his servant, you go to the untouchable because I saved you, untouchable. You see what I mean? So Peter's getting this lesson to, 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 to going. And there, 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 there's a lesson here. There are a couple of lessons. Everybody wants to be respected, right? We all want to be respected. And Peter is a gospel preacher. He's being taught especially, you need to humble yourself. You need to exalt Jesus and humble yourself in order to be a good servant. There's a danger in what I would call an inordinate desire for respectability. An inordinate desire for respectability. What do I mean by that? If you do that, you will resist going to the people that Christ sends you. You will resist going to people that you you consider non-respectable. And you will inordinately lust for men to consider you respectable. And I'm going to say this. If you're looking for the respectability of men, you, you do it at the expense of friendship with God. People that want to be called worldly wise men by worldly wise men, you make yourself an enemy of God. If a servant of Jesus is not willing to offend the unbeliever with his or her service to Jesus, you're going to offend Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus says, if your faith is lukewarm, you won't go where Jesus says. You won't go to the lowly. You won't, you won't risk offending a carnal person with your love and service of Jesus. You, don't, you won't do it because they're going to call you a fool. They're going to call you narrow. They're going to call you a bigot. If you won't do it, Jesus says what about your lukewarm faith? I'm going to spit you out. I will spit you out. Peter is being trained as a minister, and we're all being trained as Christians. Beware when all men speak what of you. Man, it is dangerous business when someone who is a professing Christian and non-Christians go, that guy, that girl, boy, they're respectable. Really? I can tell you what you're not saying, Jesus. You're not saying you're a sinner and Christ is the only Savior. I can tell you that. And Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 16, rejoice when people say what about you? When they abuse you. Because they did it to the prophets. What did the unbelieving world say about Jesus? He's a tool of the devil. So if we want to be respectable, Peter would have never gone to Simon. You don't go to Simon. You let, I don't know who goes to see Simon, but not respectable ministers. Not respectable. I want you to think of the people that we admire in their faith, because this is a lesson here. How, did the, how were the, the, the prophets in the Bible and how were the apostles in the Bible treated? How were they? How do you think? Call me reverend. Let me drive my, my Mercedes. Let me make $250,000 a year. Let me skate through life just being considered honorable. No. They're thrown in pits. 
What about the men that we, we admire from church history? 1500s, men like Luther, excommunicated, lived under the threat of death. What about the 1600 English, they called the English Puritans Puritans? Was that a good word? No, it means you're a legalist. 1700s, the evangelical preachers like Whitfield, what were they, what were they called? Methodists. It's another word that means you're a legalist. And they called them fools. You really believe this Jesus business? Jesus alone? Jesus saving Jews? Jesus saving Gentiles? Blood? You believe it? You're a fool. And you know what man like Whitfield said? First Corinthians? Then we're fools for Christ's sake. The servant is being taught. We're always servants. And we should always be content as a servant to say, I must decrease. He must increase. That's a lesson that he learns by Simon the Tanner. Don't ever, beloved, don't ever look at another human being and look down on them as if they're so low you could not minister Christ to them. I often think, let's say God puts someone who is just so low in your presence. God put him there. God put that human being in front of you. And they're human beings. They have a body. They have a soul. They're made in the image of God. And then think about who and what we are apart from Jesus. This is why it's obnoxious when people say, well, you Christians are looking down at every... Well, I mean, we we do believe Jesus alone is the only way to heaven. We shouldn't be looking down our nose because we're the worst sinners. And that's the person that makes um, a useful servant. Um, What would be another potential reason why... Peter, who is a Jew, who believes Jesus is the Messiah, God come in the flesh, why would he say, stay with a social outcast, Simon? What, what's a potential reason why he might? If you were a believer in Jesus as Peter, what happened to you in Peter's day? You got excommunicated. And then after that, you got taken off the planet. Peter was a social pariah. He was a religious outcast himself. He got booted out. I think Simon the Tanner is a believer. So who does he go hang out with as a social pariah with another social outcast? Beloved, we need to get this. This is attached to the respectability. Nominal Christians, which means name only, which is a bad idea, always persecute those who are true Christians. Always. They despise real faith because real faith makes the nominal Christian look bad. And it makes us nervous. Like you really love Jesus. Yeah, and I'm going to tell people about you. And you're going to live for him. You're going to be married for Christ. You're going to raise your kid for Christ. You're going to vote for Christ. Yeah, you're just, this is just way too much Jesus. You're a nut. Don't get me wrong. I'm a Christian, but I'm not like you nuts. That's what happens. We as servants need to know on the front end, what are we getting into? The better part of the church is going to think a person with true zealous love for Jesus is a loon. You are going to be despised. The church killed Christ. The Gentiles killed Christ. He was despised. We need to know on the front end, this business that we believe in, the one that we believe in, is not popular. Not popular in the church, not popular in the world. Here is a man who is despised, hanging out with another man who is despised because they're the same family. And I'm going to say one more point, and then I'm going to quit. And Peter goes from um, Joppa, and he walks to Caesarea. He's walking up the coast. It's on the Mediterranean coast. And it's 32, 30, 
33 miles from Joppa to, um, to, to uh, Caesarea. And we're learning this about a servant. Um, I used to be a runner. I'm not a runner anymore. I walk. I'm just like, my wife is a marathoner, so she runs. So if you're going to do the calculation for how to cover 32, 33 miles, how long would it take you just walking? Remember, you're not walking on a track, and you don't have track shoes on. I don't know. Let's say 10 to 15 hours of walking, whether you're carrying anything, and maybe some breaks. The Apostle Peter is told by God, go minister to another human being who's over 30 miles away. It's going to take you 10 to 15 hours of walking. Go. And guess what he does? He goes. I know this is not a stunner. He walks for 10 to fi- he walks for 10 to 15 hours. He's a servant. This is one of the lessons that God keeps pressing upon us. I know this is going to be a stunner. Servants are servants. This is work. We have been brought in this world not to recreate ourselves to death. We have been brought into this world in Christ to work, to serve the Lord Jesus. And at this time, to be a gospel minister of Jesus was work, work. I, this is just me. I think the Lord Jesus was real thin. I think Peter was real thin. I think Paul was real thin. Why? Because they're walking behind a gospel mule all day long. You ever seen guys walk behind mules? They look like this. That's them. They're walking around all day, blood, sweat, and tears, to minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to some other human being. So the, the, the expenditure of energy... Christ's servants are being taught that we are called to expend energy to serve Jesus. I I promise I'm not picking on anybody. God tells Peter, walk 30 miles to tell someone about Jesus, and he does it. Have you ever walked 30 miles? The most I've ever run in my life when I was doing a ton of running was 22 miles in the woods in UWF. That was the highest I've ever run, and I couldn't walk for like a day. Have you ever walked 30 miles? Jesus tells you, someone... Someone needs to hear Christ walk 30 miles. I'm going to say this. How many people, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus so much, it's ridiculous. Bing bong, it's Sunday. Ooh. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm getting the Sunday <laughs> sickness. <laughs> and we won't roll out of the sack to go to church. I'm, I'm a, I mean, my house is nice. I have heat. I have air conditioning the whole nine yards. This guy will walk 30 miles to tell someone about Jesus. Will I get out of my bed, my comfortable bed, and my comfortable home and read the Bible and pray for 30 minutes? I'm a total servant of Jesus. I serve him. It's so ridiculous how I serve him. (laughs) Do you expend any energy? And what happens? We have the Sunday go to meeting, the glandular problem that happens on Sunday, or it rains, or it's sunny. So whether it rains, you can't come to church because you could be killed coming to church in the rain, or if it's sunny, you have to go to the beach. We're servants. A lot of people get into gospel ministry. It should be men. Let's just talk men. Ladies shouldn't be ministers, but that's another story. So men. A lot of guys get into gospel ministry and they think, you know what? You know why I'm going to be a minister? It's, it's easy work. I mean, you, you eat fried chicken and you play golf all week and then you move your lips for 30 minutes. It's just a sweet gig 
and you make great cash. If you're a minister in Abu Dhabi right now, is it a sweet gig? What do you think? To be a gospel minister here, was it easy and did there come with lots of honor? And I'm going to say this by way of application. Isaiah 6, Christians say this all the time. And this is a lesson here. They use this phrase, here I am, Lord. Finish the next sentence. Here I am, Lord. I'll go anywhere. You want me to go talk to Muslims or Hindus? Want me to send me to India to see my wife's family? I'll go anywhere to tell anybody about Jesus. Will you get out of bed and go to church? Will you read your Bible? Will you pray? Will you stop watching porn? Will you love your wife? Will you raise your kids in the Lord? Actually, no, I won't do any of that. Peter's being taught. Simon's being taught. Cornelius is being taught. We're being taught. We have to determine, as Christ's servants, whose servant are we really? If you'll only serve Jesus on your terms, you're not a servant of Jesus. Will you serve Jesus on Jesus' terms? Because if you say, I'm going to go, and he sends you to the dregs, and you don't because it's work, you're not a servant. Jesus says, you either serve me, God, or you serve self, mammon. Do we as Christians want men to say, you're so honorable, well done? Or do we as the servant want Jesus to say, well done? And I, I hope that I'm not picking on anybody. But beloved, I do want to end with what John the Baptist, all of us, we're servants. We've been saved to serve, to go where Jesus says go, to say what Jesus says on his terms. And sometimes the work that Christ has for us is right in front of us. It's not a hundred miles away. It's our mother, our father, our sister, our brother, the church, the people that we meet every day. And that we're called to minister the Lord Jesus Christ to them. For the glory of Christ. For the good of their souls. We're servants. It is glorious to be a servant, but we're servants. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.